I'm uh, working my way through a, a little bit of a cold, I think, so if you'd uh, pray for me that uh, during the service that my voice holds up and, and I'm not the guy to shake hands with afterwards. I'll try to, I'll try to keep my distance. Uh, Mark and Lori are taking a well-deserved break this weekend, as, as Michael said. And uh, one of the things I'm, that Mark talked about last week was uh, the importance of the church speaking the truth into our culture. And uh, that is very true. And I, I said to him uh, that the other shoe is uh, that we need to live out the truth. Uh, we need to live out the power of the gospel in, in our community and, and around the world. And uh, so today, <clears throat> I, I'm going to be talking about what, what uh, God expects of us as, as we live out the gospel, first as individual believers and then as a church. We have a calling as individuals. We have a calling as, as a larger church to live out the, uh, the truth of the gospel, live out the love of Jesus Christ. But some of what I'm going to say is going to be kind of provocative, I think, or, or controversial uh, because it challenges some popular thinking with regard to the uh, church and, and uh, uh, how we as individual believers are supposed to do that. But let's... Uh, Let's read about one fellow who had a similar kind of concern about what God's expectations were for him. He was a Jewish religious teacher, a legal expert at the time, and we're going to read about him in Luke 10, 25 through 37. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you'll be able to see that either in the Bible in front of you or on the screen. And I'm going to be using the NIV translation here, so it'll be a little bit different from the NASB that's in your, in your pew. But Luke 10, 25 through 37. On, an, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and, and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he took the man on his own donkey... And put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Notice the question that the, 
the expert in the law asked. It was a big question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That was not an uncommon question in the time. The teachers, the rabbis, and students asked those kinds of questions of each other, of each other all the time. But notice the, the uh, emphasis in the, in the inherent in that question on doing. What must I do to inherit eternal life? As if eternal life could be earned by something that we do for, for God. Jesus prompted him to answer the question himself from the law. He just turned it around on him. And the answer was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He acknowledged that that answer was correct when he said, you've answered correctly. But, but and this is the interesting part. The, the expert in the law, Scripture says, he wanted to justify himself. Another translation, that the message paraphrase says, but... He wanted to find a loophole. So he asked, who is my neighbor? Now before we're too hard on this Jewish scholar, let's acknowledge that uh, don't we all try to find a loophole sometimes? Don't, don't we all try to bob and weave and rationalize around what, what God's asking us to do, what we know he, he wants for us, and what we know the right thing is? As, as my lawyer friends would say, we, we try to limit our liability by narrowing the, the scope of, of what the requirement is. And, and that's what uh, this man is doing with these weasel words when he says, uh, who is my neighbor? He wants Jesus to redefine neighbor to be basically somebody I'm comfortable helping. You know, somebody I know, uh, somebody who likes me, um, maybe somebody from my church, workplace, from my social strata, Somebody um, in the same country club? Somebody I like? But Jesus would have none of that. And uh, he answered with a story about a man who modeled both the spirit and the intent of what God's law taught. So what can we learn from uh, this parable about what God's expectations are for us? Well, first of all, notice that the, poor, the, the first two men who, who happened upon this poor victim were a priest and a Levite. They were religious leaders at the time. And they were probably coming back from Jerusalem having performed their religious duties in Jerusalem, fresh from, uh, from the religious rituals that they'd performed. And although they were walking in the same direction, Scripture tells us, as the man who'd been beaten and robbed, uh, these two, instead of stopping, they, they crossed the road, walked around him to get as far away from him as they could when they passed him by. You know, those first two men uh, undoubtedly knew what the right thing to do was. Knowledge was not their problem. Uh, they were religious leaders of the time. They knew the law backwards and forwards. And they knew what God's heart was toward the poor and the destitute and those who had been victimized. Uh, but it failed to translate into compassionate action on their part, didn't it? And, and there's a principle there, and that, that is that knowing is not the same as doing, is it? Uh, those of you who have raised kids know that uh, there are occasions when uh, your, your child will say to you, but, but Dad, I know, Dad, I know. You're trying to instruct them, and they say, well, Dad, I, I know. And, and I'll respond with the classic parent response, 
I know you know, but you don't do. You, you need to do what you know. Knowing is not enough. And the same, same way uh, for some of us sometimes in, in the church who have been believers a long time, uh, sometimes knowing a lot about the faith, knowing a lot about God and, and what he requires of us, uh, we can sometimes succumb to the illusion that we're actually doing what we know. Knowing is not enough, is it? It wasn't in this case. So contrast the, uh, the actions of these guys who were hearers but not doers with, with those actions of the Samaritan. And it, it's interesting that the, uh, Jesus used a Samaritan in this, in this story because the Jews really hated the Samaritans. It really, it really put a point on the, on the story. And this Jewish legal expert would undoubtedly uh, never have associated with this uh, Samaritan. But when the Samaritan saw the poor victim, the scripture says he took pity on him. Another version says his heart went out to him. In spite of the fact that the Samaritan probably had far less religious knowledge and understanding than what the previous two guys did, uh, the condition of his heart was such that he couldn't act any other way. He just, he just responded uh, in the same way his, his, uh, his heart was oriented. So he went into rescue mode. And, and notice that his actions, too, were, were sacrificial. It cost him something. Uh, first of all, he put himself at risk. This, uh, this uh, road between, uh, I think it was uh, 17 miles or so, between Jerusalem and Jericho, was well known for being a haven for robbers. It was rocky and it was uh, uh, precipitous, and there were lots of uh, curves and lots of places for bad guys to hide. So it was notorious for, for robberies. And, uh, and the fact that uh, this Samaritan stopped at the, uh, to help this victim, he put himself at risk, because the same people who, who uh, beat and robbed uh, the first victim could well have done the same thing to him. It, it also cost him his, his time, uh, the the uh, medical supplies, the bandages he probably ripped from his own clothing at the time, and then the money it cost him and the time that it cost him to uh, bring this poor victim to the inn and pay for his recovery. Uh, but, but he did all that. And, and there's a principle in that for us, and, and the principle is that, uh, that responding with mercy and compassion to those in need will, will cost us something, and it will require sacrifice. Responding with mercy and compassion to those in need will, will cost us something. And it will require sacrifice. Something else that's uh, noticeable by its absence in this parable is the, did you notice that there's no relationship defined between the Samaritan and the person he helped? Uh, it wasn't somebody out of his own clan. Uh, Jesus, Jesus was particular about leaving that out. Uh, it's, a, it's quite apparent that... Um, that this person had no relationship, and that's exactly the point. We usually think of a neighbor as uh, somebody that we know or have an association with, usually somebody that lives close to us geographically, somebody that we have some affinity with. And, uh, and that's not what Jesus said here. He said our neighbor, this is principle number two, he, he said our neighbor is anyone in need whom God puts in our way or brings to our attention, stranger or not. Our neighbor is anyone in need whom God puts in our way, brings to our attention, stranger or not. Notice that, uh, and that's emphasized in the, in the two commandments. The first commandment is, 
uh, love the Lord your God. The second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. You, you notice that the second one, the, the way God has set that up, the second one is evidence of the first one. It's hard to tell in the abstract whether somebody loves God. But if you see them living out the, the love of Jesus Christ to their neighbor, the fact that they love God is evident, isn't it? So the second one is evidence of the first one. They're, they're linked together in that way. And, and uh, principle number three then is uh, that evidence for the love for God that we profess will, will be our, our love for our neighbor. And uh, uh, John says that too. In 1 John 3.17, John links our love for God with our willingness to, to help those people in need. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? In other words, we need to, we need to walk the, the talk as, as those who follow Christ and, uh, and are living out the, the power of the gospel. We need to, to walk the talk. Our love for God must be uh, lived out in the way that we respond to, to those in need. I, I heard of an example of this uh, recently from the second century. Uh, Father John Sirico in the, in the Truth Project series that some of you are involved with he mentions the, a, a letter that apparently still exists from a Roman commander uh, in charge of Antioch at the time in the second century. This, this commander writes back to his superior and says uh, he's commenting on a, a severe plague that's occurring in Antioch at the time. He says, I pulled the soldiers back out of Antioch uh, for their own safety. He said, the plague is so severe that even the doctors and the city officials have left. Uh, people have left their own loved ones uh, sick and dying because they're afraid for their own lives. He said, uh, the only people that, that remain are a religious sect. When asked why they stayed, they said, it is out of the great love we have for our God. His name is Christos, the Christ. Now, that's laying down your life. That's sacrificially living out the love of Christ to, to those in need. And people take notice. God has a heart for the poor and destitute. And you see that again and again and again in, in Scripture. And he has a special uh, blessing also for those who minister to the poor. Pastor Rick Warren from uh, Saddleback uh, was one of the first ones I, I saw point this out, that there are over 2,000 references in the Scripture to, uh, to the poor, to poverty, to uh, uh, God's concern for those who are destitute. And a, a few of those many scriptures that, uh, just to illustrate God's concern for the poor and the blessings that, that he reserves for those who minister to them, I've reproduced for you. I put the references in your outline there. Psalm 82, 3 and 4, he says, Defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Those are instructions to, to us, to you and I. Deuteronomy 15, 7 and 8. If there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. Give generously to him. Do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. So there's blessing in meeting the needs of the poor. I, I really like, uh, one of my favorites is Proverbs 19:17. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he's done. 
James 1.27, religion that under the category of what pleases God, what are God's expectations? Well, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And then finally, Matthew 25, uh, Jesus talks about what uh, a final judgment will look like when he's separating sheep from goats. And, and he's talking about um, uh, the actions of, of those who have, have uh, been kind to or met the needs of those, those uh, poor. He says, then the king will say to those on, the, on, his, on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Now, as you go on in that passage, you, you find that they say, when did we see you, Lord? He said, anytime you did it to one of the least of these, you, you did the same thing to me. So ministering to the poor, meeting their needs, it is a way of, of uh, doing the same thing to, to Christ. Is this as if they were Christ and were ministering directly to him. Jesus had great uh, compassion for those people who are in need and, and he set the example for us in the way that he ministered to the poor and the sick and the destitute, certainly when he was on this earth. My question to you is, are our hearts broken in the same way that God's heart is broken uh, by the, the poor and the, and the sick and the destitute? Bob Pierce, the guy who, who founded uh, World Vision in the late 40s, that was his prayer. He said, Father, let, let my heart be broken by the things that, that break the heart of God. I uh, included a reference to a book on your outline. This is uh, Richard Stern's book, The Hole in Our Gospel. And Stern's is, is the president of World Vision right now. And... And one of the things, uh, one of the chapters in that book that I found particularly striking was a chapter called 100 Crashing Jetliners. And in that chapter, he asks us to, to imagine, he said, what if, what if 100 jetliners crashed today around the world, different parts of the world? Uh, he said, imagine the panic and the pandemonium as governments all over the world would scramble to try to figure out what happened, try to prevent that from happening again. Uh, imagine the level of attention that that would generate. And he said, then, then what if it happened, imagine that it happened tomorrow, another 100 jetliners, and the next day, and the next. Uh, it would just paralyze our, our world system, and, uh, and we'd all be in panic mode. And, and it would consume everyone's attention until we'd find, found out what the cause was. And then he, he uh, gave me a reality check as I read along, and, and he said, well, actually, that's, that's what's happening every day. He said, every day, 26,500 children die from causes that are preventable. Every single day, 26,000 today, 26,000 tomorrow, 26,000 the next day, 10 million children in a year. They die from starvation, from malnutrition, from polluted drinking water, malaria, HIV, AIDS, and other preventable causes. You know, my first question when I, when I read that was, 
Why wasn't I aware of the magnitude of this tragedy before? Because it seems like, you know, if one airliner crashes someplace in the world, it makes headlines until they figure out what happened and, and uh, they fill you in on all, all the specifics. It hits CNN and it hits the major newspapers. and uh, That's just one airliner. But here are 26,000 children dying every day and it doesn't even seem to make the back page, does it? For the most part. Then, then Stearns, uh, in his book, asks a hard question. He, he says, if the Christians in the 340,000-odd churches in America know about this tragic loss of life, and they have the ability to stop it, don't we have a responsibility to act to save those children? Well, hold that thought for just a minute while I, while I give you some perspective. Let me share, let me share with you some, uh, some telling comparisons. First of all, there, there are approximately 6.7 billion people in the world. We Americans are only about 4.5% or 308 million of that number. The average income in America is $38,611 per person or about $105 a day. On the other hand, the poorest 3.6 billion or about 55% of the people in this world, the poorest live on less than $2 a day. If you make $25,000 a year, if you're here this morning and you make $25,000 a year, you're wealthier than 90% of the people in this world. If you make $50,000, you're in the top 1% of the, of the people in this world. The total income of American Christians is $5.2 trillion. Now you may say, well, I don't quite have my share of that, but it's a, it's a lot of money. But the point is that we, we are the wealthiest Christians in the history of the world. The average giving of American churchgoers in 2005 was 2.58% was of income. And in comparison, the giving at the height of the Great Depression was 3.3%. 98% of the giving received in American churches stays in that church or in the local community. Only 2% uh, is uh, directed toward overseas missions of any kind. Now, this is the hard part. Unfortunately, instead of engaging those who are suffering in our communities and, and the larger world with a, a visible demonstration of Christ's love, uh, the church has to a large degree turned inward. You know, we've invested in buildings, we've invested in programs and hiring staff, and some of that is necessary and appropriate. Um, but in many ways, as an American church, we, we've walked by on the other side of the road. We focused on what's going on inside our four walls to the neglect of the larger calling that we have to the poor and, and suffering in this world. And, and let me be clear, it's not, it's not our fault that there are poor people in the world, but it is our responsibility to do something about it. Some good news and some bad news. The good news is we're rich. The, the bad news is it, it's not ours to keep. <laughs> uh, God's command to the, those of us who have much, in, in first, first, and that would be all of us, by the way, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, 
command those who are rich in this present world, that would be all of us, not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So here's another principle for us. Everything we have comes from God. We don't own anything, but we're merely stewards of the master's resources uh, for which we will have to give account. Remember the parable of the talents? The master went away to a far country and trusted his servants with a a different uh, amount of talents or resources, in other words, finances, and then came back to demand an accounting. Well, God will want an accounting as to how how we've done with the resources he's entrusted to us. Have we invested them for the kingdom? Here's the example of the the Acts 2 church. The the community that the Acts 2 church lived in was in awe of that church. This is part of the reason. All of the believers in uh, Acts 2, 44 and 45, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. That's the way it's supposed to happen, folks. And, and let me just stop right here for a minute and, and give you license to do something that you may not otherwise be comfortable to do. We have people right in this church who've lost their jobs and, and who are really struggling and, and suffering right now. You may not know uh, all of, of who they are. And, and yes, we have a benevolence fund and the church acts to, to help those folks as well. But let me give you license to do this. When, when you find that out, Uh, feel free to approach that person and say, I'm so sorry to hear that you lost your job. Uh, How can I help you? And now I want to give license to the person uh, to accept that help. The the person who is unemployed or for whatever reason is suffering. Uh, I want to tell them it's okay to say, well, you know, I could really use help with my utility bill this month. And then it's okay for you to say, well, let me take care of that for you this month. I mean, that's how it's supposed to look. That's how it looked in Acts 2. I, I know there is the government and there is, un, there is unemployment compensation and there are other safety nets, uh, but our first priority to live out the love of Christ is to members of the family here. And, and uh, I, I want you to feel free to do that. That's how the church is supposed to work. We're supposed to take care of each other in that way. Paul's direction to the Corinthian church regarding their gift to the Christians in Jerusalem. Christians in Jerusalem were destitute at the time, and uh, and the others over in Macedonia uh, had more. So Paul says, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that, that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. In, in other words, we meet each other's basic needs, at least. Paul's admonition was to sow generously. And in, in 1 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15, he says, Remember this, who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, 
you'll abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Where do you suppose he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor? Well, to you and me, among others. Some of his gifts to the poor are in our pockets. And we need to pass them on. He says, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Uh, it will create a visible picture, a tangible representation of the love of Jesus Christ that will win people to Christ, that will soften hearts and win people to Christ. That the message, folks, is that God has entrusted his gifts for the poor to us. And that if, if we'll trust him and give generously, he'll, he'll enlarge the harvest of our righteousness. He talks about this harvest of, of righteousness. Uh, most of us have some kind of 401k, we put money away at each paycheck, and presumably at some point in time, that 401k is going to be worth something, and we're going to be able to draw on it at a later stage in life. Well, let me ask you this. How is your heavenly 401k doing? How is your harvest of righteousness? How are those investments working out for you? And what will be there when you get there? Because God says that he will pay you back. The, the one who, who helps the poor a lens to God. God will bless him for it. And, and he said, don't, don't worry about that. I'll take care of you. Just be generous. That's what I gave you those things for, and I will take care of your needs. Don't worry about that. How is your eternal 401k doing? The gospel has to be lived out, and Jesus set the example for us, and uh, he didn't just speak about the gospel. He lived it out. He, he, was, he had a heart for the poor and the destitute and the sick, uh, that he lived with, and uh, very often you notice when he uh, addressed someone's physical needs, it opened that person up spiritually so that he could address their spiritual needs as well. And that's the way it works with us as well. St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. You see, you live out the gospel, and then it, it opens up the people around you who see that, so that you can talk with them about spiritual things. You gain standing and credibility because they see the, life, the love of Christ demonstrated in your life. Uh, but instead, uh, Stern says in his book, The Hole in, the Gospel, in, in Our Gospel, that uh, in some ways we've, re we've reduced the gospel to a transaction. He says, we've in fact reduced the gospel to a mere transaction involving the right beliefs rather than seeing in it the power to change the world. The gospel was intended to be, and the church is intended to be, a powerful force for good in this world. And that, that's why Jesus said it was, it was good news. The, the blind would see, the lame would walk. Uh, the gospel would bring with it the love of, of God. And, and Jesus is coming back, but we're here now. And, and he expects us to live out that gospel and, and that uh, love of Jesus Christ to the people around us. You know, part of the problem with... Uh, treating the gospel like a mere transaction, like an intellectual exercise where you have to argue somebody into the kingdom and then they, uh, uh, they, they finally agree, uh, is that it, it really 
uh, blunts our effectiveness at evangelism. We wonder why we have so much difficulty with evangelism sometimes. And it's because we haven't uh, demonstrated the love of Christ uh, in a way that plants the seeds of the gospel in the people who see it and softens their heart. And the Holy Spirit can use that example to, to ready their hearts for, for the gospel. George Barna says that uh, his research indicates that of uh, people who, who uh, do not come to faith by age 18, only 6% will come to faith thereafter. My question is, and Stern's question in his book is, is that because they don't see enough of the example uh, of the love of Christ demonstrated in our lives that makes them want to come into the kingdom? Uh, isn't the powerful demonstration of the love of God in our lives as we reach out to other people, isn't that, that part of what draws people? That's, that's what the uh, surrounding community in Acts 2 found so amazing. They were in awe, Scripture says, of the Acts 2 church because of the love that they saw radiated out from that church and the way that people took care of each other and, and others in the community. Frederick Faber says, uh, kindness has converted more sinners than zeal, eloquence, or learning. What difference could the church make, the American church make, if it gave generously to those in need? Well, it, if all American churchgoers began tithing, it would generate $163 billion in extra resources over and above the funds that are available now. It would be enough to, for example, for $63 billion, eliminate the most extreme poverty for over one billion people. We could implement universal primary education for children for, for $6 billion. $9 billion would bring clean water to most of the world's poor. And that's what kills many of the world's, world's poor is, is polluted water. $13 billion would provide basic health and nutrition for everybody in the, in the world who needed it. To, to put it another way, we could eliminate extreme poverty. The American church could eliminate extreme poverty for over a billion people in the world for about the same money that Americans spent on jewelry in 2008. $65 billion. Or, or just a little more than we spent on state lottery tickets in 2007. You get my drift. The point is that none of these problems are insurmountable. We're called to make a difference in the, in the lives of the poor and the destitute. And, and all these problems can be addressed if we're willing to, to give and, and to act and to sacrifice in the name of Jesus to, to demonstrate his love to, to people who are destitute. So what, what keeps us from demonstrating the, the love of Christ in those tangible ways? Well, remember the parable of the sower, Matthew 13? Remember the thorny soil, the three kinds of soil? And the thorny soil, it says the, uh, the thorny soil actually <clears throat> choked out the, the gospel. And, and specifically, it was, and I'm quoting, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of riches can choke out the power of the gospel in our lives. It's all about the American dream, isn't it? And that's part of our culture. And, and we, we're driven to uh, be successful. You know, the one who has the most toys when he dies wins. Uh, that, that whole game. 
piling up, piling up possessions. Uh, and, and some of us are so leveraged in terms of our time and our treasure that we have no time to serve and, and no money to give. Uh, Pastor Francis Chan, I'm going to show a YouTube video at the, at the close of the, the message here, and uh, the uh, woman singing is Lisa Chan. Her husband is Pastor Francis Chan, who is the pastor at Cornerstone Church in California. And uh, he wrote the book Crazy Love, which I've, always, uh, I've also included as a reference on your, your outline. But he and uh, Lisa came back from a trip to Africa and uh, felt so compelled by God to make a difference in the lives of the, the uh, people that they had been with in Africa that uh, he said, I, you know, I, I, sold, I downsized. He said, I sold the house I had, I bought a smaller one so that I could free up those resources to help people who were really in need. Uh, that's, that's sacrifice. The, the point is that uh, a, lot of, a lot of the uh, resources that are, are needed to make a difference are in our pockets. And uh, Beth Moore said, uh, Beth Moore is the, uh, uh, a noted Bible teacher that a number of the women are studying in, in uh, the women's Bible study here. But she had a series on Daniel. I listened to one of her sessions on Daniel. She made the point that Satan will, Satan's weapon, uh, Satan's favorite strategy, is to use our own affluence to distract us from sacrificial living and, and cause us to miss God's unique calling on our lives. Uh, that is that we become preoccupied with pursuing the American dream, with piling up stuff, uh, with achieving what is valued to our culture, not necessarily valued to, to God, and we miss God's unique calling on our lives that he, that he has for us because we're preoccupied, we're distracted. Then there are judgmental attitudes and actions, that, um, attitudes and behaviors um, you know, some of us are convinced that if somebody is poor, uh, it must be their fault somehow. You know, they made bad decisions, they invested their money poorly, they, they uh, didn't save, they, you know. Well, some of that is, is irrelevant to some of the people that we're talking about here. A, a number of the, the people who are poor around the world are destitute due to circumstances that are, are outside their control. And, and they'll die in their poverty unless somebody intervenes to help them. A third barrier is a, the misconception that discipleship is a, is a cafeteria plan. Following Christ is a cafeteria plan, and, and we can check the easy box if we want to and, uh, and get kind of a, a trimmed-down version of discipleship, if you will. John MacArthur said on the cost of discipleship, Mankind wants glory, we want health, we want wealth, we want happiness, we want all our felt needs met, all our little human itches scratched, we want a painless life, we want the crown without the cross, we want the gain without the pain, we want the words of Christ's salvation to be easy. But that's not what Jesus said. He said if you try to save your own life, you're going to lose it. The one who, who loses his life for my sake uh, is the one who who follows me. He said, take up your cross. That doesn't sound like a fun trip, does it? It involves sacrifice. So there's no easy box to check, and 
Jesus didn't offer a fire insurance only option with discipleship. It's more than just attending more Bible studies. This is another trap we run into in the church. It's, it's more than attending more Bible studies and accumulating more information about Bible, the Bible or about God. As, as wonderful as that teaching is and as necessary as it is for us to be able to know and, and use Scripture in our life with God, sooner or later, folks, we have to get out of the pew and we have to go out into the world and engage and we have to walk the talk and we have to demonstrate the love of Christ to the, the people that we encounter and that's the example that Jesus set for us. Well, we've, we've uh, taken some, some small steps here at, at New Hope. Some of you are involved in them, and I certainly don't mean to talk as if none of you have a ministry where you're demonstrating the uh, love of Christ, because I, I know that that's true. There's much more that I know about. Some of the things that we've done here recently that are examples of living out the love of Christ, uh, living out the gospel, are, for example, that shoebox ministry that many of you have been involved in. We, we send uh, a shoebox full of encouragement to some child who is destitute halfway around the world and, along with a gospel message and make a difference in their lives. That's important. Sparrow's Nest, uh, you've, whether you know it or not, New Hope has a, a team of people uh, that have ministered to uh, a single mom who came right out of a homeless shelter, she and her son, um, over the past several months and, and continue, will continue to uh, for a, a period of time here uh, to to uh, help her become self-sufficient. Uh, so that, that's one demonstration of the love of Christ that you're involved in here as a church. Uh, another, another opportunity, if you're looking for an opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ to somebody one-on-one and engage with people who are in need, Christian services could use some people to help answer the phones, to, t- to talk to clients, as they call it, talk to people in need and help to, to direct them to the resources that, uh, that they need. Here's another one that I saw lived out right in this church. Herb and Carlene Meyer, some of you know. They're an uh, an older couple that lives, uh, or that uh, goes to this church. I think they're in Florida at the moment. But um, a few weeks ago, I became aware that uh, Herb and Carlene, they had a blind friend who was living in an apartment, and her her health became such that she she could no longer live there. And so she had to be moved into assisted living. Well, there was nobody to do that. She was alone. She had no one who lived with her, nobody who took care of her. So uh, Herb and Carlene didn't have to do this, but they stepped up and they said, we'll, we'll do what needs to be done. And so they took care of her health care needs. They found her a place in, in an assisted living facility where she, she uh, can be taken care of and her, her needs can be met. But then this is, this is uh, servanthood. Then they rolled up their sleeves, they put on their rubber gloves, and they went into that apartment where a blind person had lived for 10 years, and they cleaned it, and they dumped a bunch of stuff, and they gave the other stuff to the mission, and they, they did everything that had to be done that there was nobody else to do. And it took them two weeks. They took two weeks out of their life to do that. And, and I, said, I said to them, God bless you. You know, you're living out the love of Christ. And, and uh, being, being, servants, being servants in a way that that touches the hearts of the people who see that. that. That's what we're talking about, that kind of sacrifice. You know, ask God to show you what he has for you in terms of your calling. He has a unique calling for each of us. If you think of it as a jigsaw puzzle, and God has each piece in his hand, and, and God has a, a plan for bringing in the kingdom, for accomplishing his purposes, he has a unique 
calling for you and I as individuals. Ask him what that is. Ask him who he's going to bring into your path uh, that you need to demonstrate the love of Christ to. It may be somebody you know who's out of work, who's grieving, who's lonely, or who just needs a friend to show them the love and encouragement of Christ. Um, there are a lot of ways to demonstrate the love of Christ. You have people downstairs right now who, who love our children and our grandchildren and who live out that love of Christ uh, in service to them and, and others who, who minister to our needs here at the church. But there are lots of ways to do that outside as well. Um, if, you're, uh, if you're looking for something in particular to uh, focus on that would meet the needs of somebody around the world, check out the web pages of uh, World Vision and Samaritan's Purse. Did you know, I, I never knew this before, but did you know that uh, something as simple as a couple chickens can make a huge difference in the life of a family who is destitute someplace in the other, the other side of the world? Did you know that you can, you can buy a couple chickens over the web for 25 bucks? You can buy five ducks for, for uh, 30 bucks. You can buy a goat for 75 bucks. There you go. Now, there's a combo package. You can buy a goat and two chickens for 100 bucks. <laughs> the, the point is, that you, you and I can laugh about that, but the point is that uh, having a couple of those animals can mean the difference between life and death to, to a family in another part of the world. And, uh, and you, ha- you and I have the opportunity, even as individuals, to make a difference like, like that. Um, so uh, it's just another idea. What legacy will New Hope leave as a church? God has a unique calling, I believe, on every church as well and positions us in a a unique place to make a difference in in our corner of the world and perhaps other corners of the world. What has he called us to do as a family? You know, folks, there are are churches, uh, even some in our community perhaps, uh, but there there are churches around the country that have thousands of members and millions of dollars in resources that make precious little impact on the world that they live in, outside their four walls. I think that's wrong. You know, ask yourself, if, if a particular church like that fell off the map tomorrow, would it make a difference to that community? Would, uh, would they miss it or not? Uh, we hope that they will this one. The church was intended by God to be a powerful force for good. Jesus said the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Um, And and in in some ways, we're less than that now. We need to get back there. That's part of uh, uh, recapturing our first love, I think, that uh, Michael was talking about earlier. So New Hope has already taken some of those steps. Uh, I mentioned Sparrow's Nest and uh, the shoeboxes, and there there are a number of other things that church is involved in. Uh, Larry and Marla Conover, for example, came back not long ago and filled us all in on what's happening at the orphanage in uh, Zambia. And uh, what a difference it's making. Your your church is involved in that. You are involved in that. And uh, what a difference it's making in the lives of those children who are destitute in that orphanage. That can not only uh, help them to survive, but can change the whole trajectory of their, their lives. Let me give you one final example of uh, a church about our size, halfway around the world. You're looking at a picture of Fish Hook Church. And in South Africa, they spell hook, H-O-E-K. That's Fish Hook Church in, uh, in Fish Hook, South Africa. Fish Hook Baptist Church. They joke about it being the southernmost 
Southern Baptist church in the world <laughs> at the south end of South Africa. It's a church of about 315 people, so it's about the same size as, as this church. Pastor John Thomas, about 10 years ago, uh, became aware uh, of something that shocked and stunned him. He became aware that right next door, in a shantytown slum that was predominantly black, his church is predominantly white. Uh, the shantytown slum that backs up to their church um, is populated by uh, predominantly uh, black people and that the, um, the HIV AIDS rate there was 44%. It was the highest in the world at the time. And um, his heart was broken. And he said he felt God uh, saying to him, uh, John, you're a pastor in this area. What are you going to say to me on Judgment Day when you did nothing about the HIV AIDS crisis all around you? So he shared with his, his heart with his congregation, and, and they went to work. Now, 10 years later, uh, the church is still relatively small with a budget around 300000 and a staff of 10. So do the math. Nobody's getting rich there. They have, however, created an AIDS ministry called Living Hope with an annual budget of $1.2 and a staff of 147 people that serves six communities and hundreds and hundreds of AIDS patients. Many of those patients have come to Christ during their treatment and counseling and are now ministering to others themselves. The, this is good. The government has asked Fishhook to run parts of the community health care system because they do it so much more effectively. <laughs> Fishhook Baptist Church has become known in the communities they serve as the church that cares. They are a church that refused to pass by on the other side of the road. What is, what is God calling New Hope Church to do? I can't answer that here this morning, but I think it's something we need to pray about. What is, what is our calling as a church? Where would he have us intervene to demonstrate the love of Christ and to make a difference in the world uh, for the sake of the Savior? I'm going to close with a, a YouTube video by Lisa Chan. It'll give you just a little bit more perspective on... Uh, on what might be, and then you're dismissed.